Chapter Three B of Considerations on Representative Government. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Considerations on Representative Government by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Three B. It is an adherent condition of human affairs that no intention, however sincere, of protecting the interests of others can make it safe or salutary to tie up their own hands. Still more obviously true is it that by their own hands only can any positive and durable improvement of their circumstances in life be worked out. Through the joint influence of these two principles, all free communities have both been more exempt from social injustice and crime, and have attained more brilliant prosperity than any others, or than they themselves after they lost their freedom. Contrast the free states of the world while their freedom lasted with the contemporary subjects of monarchical or oligarchical despotism, the Greek cities with the Persian satrapies, the Italian republics and the free towns of Flanders and Germany with the feudal monarchies of Europe, Switzerland, Holland, and England with Austria or anti-revolutionary France. Their superior prosperity was too obvious ever to have been gainsaid while their superiority in good government and social relations is proved by the prosperity and is manifest besides in every page of history. If we compare not one age with another, but the different governments which coexisted in the same age, no amount of disorder which exaggeration itself can pretend to have existed amidst the publicity of the free states can be compared for a moment with the contemptuous trampling upon the mass of the people which, pervaded the whole life of the monarchical countries, or the disgusting individual tyranny which was of more than daily occurrence under the systems of plunder which they called fiscal arrangements, and in the secrecy of their frightful courts of justice. It must be acknowledged that the benefits of freedom, so far as they have hitherto been enjoyed, were obtained by the extension of its privileges to a part only of the community and that a government in which they are extended impartially to all is a desideratum still unrealized. But, though every approach to this has an independent value, and in many cases more than an approach could not, in the existing state of general improvement, be made, the participation of all in these benefits is the ideally perfect conception of free government. In proportion as any, no matter who, are excluded from it, the interests of the excluded are left without the guarantee accorded to the rest, and they themselves have less scope and encouragement than they might otherwise have to that exertion of their energies for the good of themselves and of the community, to which the general prosperity is always proportioned. Thus stands the case as regards present well-being, the good management of the affairs of the existing generation. If we now pass to the influence of the form of government upon character, we shall find the superiority of popular government over every other to be, if possible, still more decided and indisputable. This question really depends upon a still more fundamental one, viz., which of two common types of character, for the general good of humanity, it is most desirable should predominate, the active or the passive type, that which struggles against evils, or that which endures them that which bends to circumstances, or that which endeavours to make circumstances bend to itself. The commonplaces of moralists and the general sympathies of mankind are in favour of the passive type. Energetic characters may be admired, but the acquiescent and submissive are those which most men personally prefer. 
The passiveness of our neighbours increases our sense of security, and plays into the hands of our wilfulness. Passive characters, if we do not happen to need their activity, seem an obstruction the less in our own path. A contented character is not a dangerous rival. Yet nothing is more certain than that improvement in human affairs is wholly the work of the uncontented characters, and moreover that it is much easier for an active mind to acquire virtues of patience than for a passive one to assume those of energy. Of the three varieties of mental excellence, intellectual, practical, and moral, there never could be any doubt in regard to the first two, which side had the advantage. All intellectual superiority is the fruit of active effort. Enterprise, the desire to keep moving, to be trying, and accomplishing new things for our own benefit, or that of others, is the parent even of speculative, and much more of practical talent. The intellectual culture, compatible with the other type, is of that feeble and vague description which belongs to a mind that stops at amusement or at simple contemplation. The test of real and vigorous thinking, the thinking which ascertains truths instead of dreaming dreams, is successful application to practice. Where that purpose does not exist, to give definiteness, precision, and an intelligible meaning to thought, it generates nothing better than the mystical metaphysics of the Pythagoreans, or the Veds. With respect to practical improvement, the case is still more evident. The character which improves human life is that which struggles with natural powers and tendencies, not that which gives way to them. The self-benefiting qualities are all on the side of the active and energetic character, and the habits and conduct which promote the advantage of each individual member of the community must be at least a part of those which conduce most in the end to the advancement of the community as a whole. But on the point of moral preferability there seems at first sight to be room for doubt. I am not referring to the religious feeling which has so generally existed in favour of the inactive character as being more in harmony with the submission due to the divine will. Christianity, as well as other religions, has fostered this sentiment. But it is the prerogative of Christianity, as regards this and many other perversions, that it is able to throw them off. Abstractedly from religious considerations, a passive character, which yields to obstacles instead of striving to overcome them, may not indeed be very useful to others, no more than to itself but it might be expected to be at least inoffensive. Contentment is always counted among the moral virtues. But it is a complete error to suppose that contentment is necessarily or naturally attendant on passivity of character. And, useless as it is, the moral consequences are mischievous. Where there exists a desire for advantages not possessed, the mind which does not potentially possess them by means of its own energies is apt to look with hatred and malice on those who do. The person bestirring himself with hopeful prospects to improve his circumstances is the one who feels good-will towards others engaged in, or who have succeeded in, the same pursuit. And where the majority are so engaged, those who do not attain the object have had the tone given to their feelings by the general habit of the country, and ascribe their failure to want of effort or opportunity, or to their personal ill-luck. But those who, while desiring what others possess, put no energy into striving for it, are either incessantly grumbling that fortune does not do for them what they do not attempt to do for themselves, or overflowing with envy and ill-will towards those who possess what they would like to have 
In proportion as success in life is seen or believed to be the fruit of fatality, or accident, and not of exertion, in that same ratio does envy develop itself as a point of national character. The most envious of all mankind are the Orientals. In Oriental moralists, in Oriental tales, the envious man is remarkably prominent. In real life he is the terror of all who possess anything desirable, be it a palace, a handsome child, or even good health and spirits. The supposed effect of his mere look constitutes the all-pervading superstition of the evil eye. Next to Orientals, in envy as in activity, are some of the southern Europeans. The Spaniards pursued all their great men with it, embittered their lives, and generally succeeded in putting an early stop to their successes. Footnote. I limit the expression to past time, because I would say nothing derogatory of a great, and now at last a free people, who are entering into the general movement of European progress with a vigor which bids fair to make up rapidly the ground they have lost. No one can doubt what Spanish intellect and energy are capable of, and their faults as a people are chiefly those for which freedom and industrial ardor are a real specific. End footnote. With the French, who are essentially a southern people, the double education of despotism and Catholicism has, in spite of their impulsive temperament, made submission and endurance the common character of the people and their most received notion of wisdom and excellence. And if envy of one another, and of all superiority, is not more rife among them than it is, the circumstance must be ascribed to the many valuable counteracting elements in the French character, and most of all to the great individual energy which, though less persistent and more intermittent than in the self-helping and struggling Anglo-Saxons, has nevertheless manifested itself among the French in nearly every direction in which the operation of their institutions has been favorable to it. There are, no doubt, in all countries really contented characters who not merely do not seek, but do not desire, what they do not already possess, and these naturally bear no ill-will towards such as have apparently a more favored lot. But the great mass of seeming contentment is real discontent, combined with indolence or self-indulgence which, while taking no legitimate means of raising itself, delights in bringing others down to its own level. And if we look narrowly even at the cases of innocent contentment, we perceive that they only win our admiration when the indifference is solely to improvement in outward circumstances, and there is a striving for perpetual advancement in spiritual worth, or at least a disinterested zeal to benefit others. The contented man, or the contented family, who have no ambition to make any one else happier, to promote the good of their country or their neighborhood, or to improve themselves in moral excellence, excite in us neither admiration nor approval. We rightly ascribe this sort of contentment to mere unmanliness and want of spirit. The content which we approve is an ability to do cheerfully without what cannot be had, a just appreciation of the comparative value of different objects of desire, and a willing renunciation of the less, when incompatible with the greater. These, however, are excellences more natural to the character in proportion as it is actively engaged in the attempt to improve its own or some other lot. He who is continually measuring his energy against difficulties, learns what are the difficulties insuperable to him, and what are those which, though he might overcome, the success is not worth the cost. 
he whose thoughts and activities are all needed for and habitually employed in practicable and useful enterprises is the person of all others least likely to let his mind dwell with brooding discontent upon things either not worth attaining or which are not so to him thus the active self-helping character is not only intrinsically the best but is the likeliest to acquire all that is really excellent or desirable in the opposite type the striving go-ahead character of england and the united states is only a fit subject of disapproving criticism on account of the very secondary objects on which it commonly expends its strength in itself it is the foundation of the best hopes for the general improvement of mankind it has been acutely remarked that whenever anything goes amiss the habitual impulse of french people is to say il faut de la patience and of english people what a shame the people who think it a shame when anything goes wrong who rush to the conclusion that the evil could and ought to have been prevented are those who in the long run do most to make the world better if the desires are low placed if they extend to little beyond physical comfort and the show of riches the immediate results of the energy will not be much more than the continual extension of man's power over material objects but even this makes room and prepares the mechanical appliances for the greatest intellectual and social achievements and while the energy is there some persons will apply it and it will be applied more and more to the perfecting not of outward circumstances alone but of man's inward nature inactivity unaspiringness absence of desire are a more fatal hindrance to improvement than any misdirection of energy and is that through which alone when existing in the mass any very formidable misdirection by an energetic few becomes possible it is this mainly which retains in a savage or semi-savage state the great majority of the human race now there can be no kind of doubt that the passive type of character is favored by the government of one or a few and the active self-helping type by that of the many irresponsible rulers need the quiescence of the ruled more than they need any activity but that which they can compel submissiveness to the prescriptions of men as necessities of nature is the lesson inculcated by all governments upon those who are wholly without participation in them the will of superiors and the law as the will of superiors must be passively yielded to but no men are mere instruments or materials in the hands of their rulers who have will or spirit or a spring of internal activity in the rest of their proceedings in any manifestation of these qualities instead of receiving encouragement from despots has to get itself forgiven by them even when irresponsible rulers are not sufficiently conscious of danger from the mental activity of their subjects to be desirous of repressing it the position itself is a repression endeavor is even more effectually restrained by the certainty of its impotence than by any positive discouragement between subjection to the will of others and the virtues of self-help and self-government there is a natural incompatibility this is more or less complete according as the bondage is strained or relaxed rulers differ very much in the length to which they carry the control of the free agency of their subjects or the supersession of it by managing their business for them but the difference is in degree not in principle and the best despots often go the greatest lengths in chaining up the free agency of their subjects a bad despot when his own personal indulgences have been provided for may sometimes be willing to let the people alone but a good despot insists on doing them good by making them do their own business in a better way than they themselves know of 
the regulations which restricted to fixed processes all the leading branches of french manufactures were the work of the great colbert very different is the state of human faculties where a human being feels himself under no external restraint than the necessities of nature or mandates of society which he has his share in imposing and which it is open to him if he thinks them wrong publicly to dissent from and exert himself actively to get altered no doubt under a government partially popular this freedom may be exercised even by those who are not partakers in the full privileges of citizenship but it is a great additional stimulus to any one's self-help and self-reliance when he starts from even ground and has not to feel that his success depends on the impression he can make upon the sentiments and dispositions of a body of whom he is not one it is a great discouragement to an individual and a still greater one of a class to be left out of the constitution to be reduced to plead from outside the door to the arbiters of their destiny not taken into consultation within the maximum of the invigorating effect of freedom upon the character is only obtained when the person acted on either is or is looking forward to becoming a citizen as fully privileged as any other the maximum of the invigorating effect of freedom upon the character is only obtained when the person acted on either is or is looking forward to becoming a citizen as fully privileged as any other what is still more important than even this matter of feeling is the practical discipline which the character obtains from the occasional demand made upon the citizens to exercise for a time and in their turn some social function it is not sufficiently considered how little there is in most men's ordinary life to give any largeness either to their conceptions or to their sentiments their work is a routine not a labor of love but of self-interest in the most elementary form the satisfaction of daily wants neither the thing done nor the process of doing it introduces the mind to thoughts or feelings extending beyond individuals if instructive books are within their reach there is no stimulus to read them and in most cases the individual has no access to any person of cultivation much superior to his own giving him something to do for the public supplies in a measure all these deficiencies if the circumstances allow the amount of public duty assigned him to be considerable it makes him an educated man notwithstanding the defects of the social system and moral ideas of antiquity the practice of the dicastery and the ecclesia raised the intellectual standard of an average athenian citizen far beyond anything of which there is yet an example in any other mass of men ancient or modern the proofs of this are apparent in every page of our great historian of greece but we need scarcely look further than to the high quality of the addresses to which their great orators deemed best calculated to act with the effect on their understanding and will a benefit of the same kind though far less in degree is produced on englishmen of the lower middle class by their liability to be placed on juries and to serve parish offices which though it does not occur to so many nor is so continuous nor introduces them to so great a variety of elevated considerations as to admit of comparison with the public education which every citizen of athens obtained from her democratic institutions makes them nevertheless very different beings in range of ideas and development of faculties from those who have done nothing in their lives but drive a quill or sell goods over a counter still more salutary is the moral part of the instruction afforded by the participation of the private citizen even if rarely in public functions he is called upon while so engaged 
to weigh interests not his own, to be guided, in case of conflicting claims, by another rule than his private partialities, to apply at every turn principles and maxims which have for their reason of existence the general good. And he usually finds associated with him in the same work minds more familiarized than his own with these ideas and operations, whose study it will be to supply reasons to his understanding, and stimulation to his feeling for the general interest. He is made to feel himself one of the public, and whatever is their interest to be his interest. Where this school of public spirit does not exist, scarcely any sense is entertained that private persons, in no eminent social situation, owe any duties to society except to obey the laws and submit to the government. There is no unselfish sentiment of identification with the public. Every thought or feeling, either of interest or of duty, is absorbed in the individual and in the family. The man never thinks of any collective interest, of any objects to be pursued jointly with others, but only in competition with them, and in some measure at their expense. A neighbor, not being an ally or an associate, since he is never engaged in any common undertaking for joint benefit, is therefore only a rival. Thus even private morality suffers, while public is actually extinct. Were this the universal and only possible state of things, the utmost aspirations of the lawgiver or the moralist could only stretch to make the bulk of the community a flock of sheep innocently nibbling the grass side by side. From these accumulated considerations, it is evident that the only government which can fully satisfy all the exigencies of the social state is one in which the whole people participate that any participation, even in the smallest public function, is useful, that the participation should everywhere be as great as the general degree of improvement of the community will allow, and that nothing less can be ultimately desirable than the admission of all to a share in the sovereign power of the State. But since all cannot, in a community exceeding a single small town, participate personally in any but some very minor portions of the public business, it follows that the ideal type of a perfect government must be representative. End of chapter 3b. Recording by Bill Borst.